For nearly seven years, Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, was holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, giving interviews to friendly journalists, hurling barbs at U.S. and other Western officials, portraying himself as a facilitator for whistleblowers all over the world to expose corruption and governmental abuses. At the same time, of course, Assange was serving as a conduit, winning or not, to Russian military intelligence in their efforts to disrupt the 2016 U.S. presidential election. But this week, the gig was up. Having worn out his welcome with the Ecuadorians, Assange was dragged out of the embassy by British police and is now facing extradition to the U.S. over a newly unsealed charge by the Justice Department that he conspired with one of his whistleblowers, former Army Private Chelsea Manning, to crack the password of a classified Defense Department computer. How strong is the case against Assange, and does it have implications for the journalists who are more than willing to publish the documents that WikiLeaks has exposed? We'll discuss with somebody who knows a lot about Assange and WikiLeaks, the former top lawyer for the U.S. intelligence community. And we'll also delve into a drama that has gripped the Washington legal community, the indictment of Gregory Craig, the former White House counsel to Barack Obama, on charges that grew out of Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, look, this was the week we thought we were going to see the long-awaited Mueller report, and we'd be talking about that for the entire show. It didn't come, it looks like, next week. But we did get these two amazing indictments that a lot of people didn't see coming. Assange... You know, including the the video of him being dragged out of the embassy with that long flowing beard and being charged by the Justice Department, and Greg Craig, somebody you and I have known for years, a uh, you know pillar of the Washington legal community, being indicted for lying to the Justice Department. Pretty remarkable on both counts. Yeah, and Julian Assange, less surprising. He'd been under investigation for many years. Uh, obviously, a difficult case to make because of the press implications. The Obama administration decided not to do it, but the Trump Justice Department has uh, found a way, and we'll get into that. Greg Craig, um, much more surprising to me. As you say, pillar of legal establishment. Um, This is a guy who, you know, a real kind of idealistic Washington lawyer. I remember him telling me that when he was a young man, a kid, his father, who was an academic used to have uh, Allard Lowenstein uh, stay over um, at the house, sleeping on his couch. He was involved in Vietnam uh, protests. I think you uh, were pointing out that uh, he actually was involved in the Watergate. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, the lawyer for the DNC, he was at Williams and Connolly then, who sued the Nixon re-election committee creep over the Watergate burglary. That's how far back he goes in Washington. And so, if nothing else, he's the sort of guy who you would think would know how to navigate the you know Washington legal issues as better than anybody so it's it's a real shock but to see him get wrapped up we're going to have an interesting conversation with our old uh, newsweek colleague uh, Stuart uh, right. Taylor one of the really great legal journalists out there and a friend of Greg and a friend of Greg's right. um, and Stewart thinks this is a legal travesty. He thinks that the case in the end uh, will not, yeah. you know, they won't be able to sustain these charges. We shall see. But uh, certainly a, a very rich, but also sad story in a lot right, of ways. Right. But before we get to that, Bill Barr, the attorney general, made quite a few headlines this week with his comments uh, before a, a Senate subcommittee when he was asked about the origins of the Russia investigation that led to the Mueller probe. Let's listen to what he said and then talk about it. I think spying on a political campaign is a big deal. It's a big deal. 
generation I grew up in, which was the Vietnam War uh, period, you know, people were all concerned about spying on uh, sure. anti-war people and so forth by the government. And there were a lot of rules put in place to make sure that there's an adequate basis before our law enforcement agencies get involved in political uh, surveillance. I'm not suggesting that those rules were violated, but I think it's important to look at that. And I'm not just, I'm not talking about the FBI necessarily, but intelligence agencies more broadly. So you're not, you're not suggesting though that spying occurred? I don't, uh, well, uh, I guess you could, I, I think there was a spying did occur. Yes, I think spying did occur. Spying did occur. Now, he's talking there about court-authorized surveillance of a foreign policy advisor in the Trump campaign. And that's using the word spying is not normally the way a Justice Department official, much less the attorney general, would describe what the government is doing. Yeah. So at first, when I heard that, you know, you and I have known Bill Barr for a very long time, and he's a really blunt spoken guy. Right. And although he's a careful lawyer, he sometimes kind of blows past some of the diplomatic, diplomatic niceties. niceties. Yes. And so my reaction was, well, he's just kind of using spying and surveillance um, interchangeably. Then I talked to some people who know him well. And um, the one person I talked to said, mm, no, he, he really thinks spying did occur. He's concerned that the FBI, they might have gotten court authorization, but he's concerned that there may not have been, to use the legal term, adequate predication for that right. authorization. And he's looking into it. Um, and he's well, it putting together- It sounds like he's been watching a lot of Fox News, <laughs> I would say. Right? Well, the, so the problem here is, or this person said, you know, this is this actually is his conviction. This is what he believes. Problem is, it also happens to align perfectly with uh, President Trump's uh, talking points and what he's been tweeting about. So I think it causes a real optics problem for Barr. I got to say, the thing that really did crack me up about those comments was when he talked about some of us from the Vietnam generation <laughs> were concerned. And, yeah. you know, and, and the reason is, I, immediately I thought back to a story, uh, I think the first profile I wrote of Bill Barr uh, when he was up for his confirmation hearing back, back in, like, in 1991. Times yeah. Days. By the way, I'm yeah. about to read this lead, and it makes right. me think maybe we should start like a, a feature on Skullduggery where you and I uh, read our read leads from a quarter from century ago. Yeah, that, that'll gonna, really grip I, our listeners, I'm sure. <laughs> but right. I, just the irony is rich. Let me just yeah. read uh, this lead. It was the spring of 1968, and William Pelham Barr was a freshman at Columbia University. The campus was undergoing a revolution led by student radicals who had seized administration buildings in a wide-ranging protest encompassing local race relations and the Vietnam War. A political movement was forming, but Barr was not on board. He said the administration was pandering to left-wing students, recalls Peter Hebert, a classmate of Barr's who is now a partner at Chicago's Winston & Strawn. He was an advocate of decisive action by the university administration. He wanted them to storm the building. <laughs> so, so are you suggesting that Barr was not there at the barricades <laughs> shouting, ho, ho, Ho Chi Minh, the NLF is going to win? Uh, no, I think uh, Barr yeah. might have been a counter-revolutionary <laughs> counter uh, back in those days, which isn't to say that yeah. he is not genuinely concerned about go you know government spying today. Right. But uh, I just thought that was kind of an yeah, interesting yeah. Uh, well, irony. Look, I mean, he would know. be chuckling about this right now oh, if I read that lead to him. I, I know that to be the case. I'm, I'm sure he he would, but it is interesting that he believes that the FBI and the U.S. intelligence agencies, which he made a point of singling out there, uh, may have overstepped their bounds in the origins of the Russia investigation, which does seem to sort of undercut the whole premise of the Mueller probe to begin with. Now, he's seen and read the entire Mueller report. He's given us his spin on it in that uh, four and a half page letter from a few weeks ago. But a lot is going to depend on what the details are. And, you know, I think the counterpoint is that the FBI and others in the U.S. intelligence community had genuine concerns about what the Russians were doing and about their contacts with various members of the in Trump world and the Trump campaign. So did they go too far? Did they mislead the FISA court? All these are 
questions well, this still is on a, the table. And investigations beget other investigations. It's so you know, it, it always becomes their story always becomes, you know, there's an investigation and then you investigate the investigators. I will say about uh, Bill Barr, he's had a rough couple of weeks in some ways. He will get by this, I think, if this report comes out next week and it is the redactions are kept to a minimum. But yeah. if it's heavily redacted, it's going to be a big problem for him. Right. And also, look, the, the obstruction issue uh, looms large here uh, because uh, Mueller didn't make a recommendation for reasons we found uh, inexplicable so far. But clearly, Barr put his take on the evidence that Mueller compiled. And if that evidence is, in fact, damning and includes details that we haven't seen before that go beyond the press reports, Barr is going to be on the defensive for reaching that conclusion. But we'll have to wait for next week to answer those questions. But we got a lot to talk about this week. So let's get to it. We now have as our uh, special guest today, Bob Litt, former chief counsel for the uh, DNI, director of national intelligence, the chief lawyer for the U.S. intelligence community. Bob, welcome to uh, Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So we want to talk about the Assange case. And you were there at the DNI when uh, the whole uh, WikiLeaks started uh, publishing all of uh, the Manning documents. But before we get to that, a lot of people have been talking about about Bill Barr's comments about spying this week, that he believes spying occurred in the beginnings of the Russia investigation. Now, you were there as chief lawyer for the spooks when the Russia investigation began. What did you make of Bill Barr's comments? So I'll just start by saying that I'm, I'm not going to talk about anything that happened while I was there. I'm just going to talk about Bill Barr's comments, okay. um, which I think were extremely unfortunate. I can sympathize with the idea that says when there is such political pressure, it's a good idea for the attorney general to say we're going to look into this, if only to, at the end, say we've looked into this and we've cleared the department. The problem is that the language that he has chosen, and I think if you watch the tape, it's pretty clear that he chose it carefully because he, he stopped and thought before he answered the question. Number one, uh, the term spying has a connotation that is very different from court-ordered surveillance. It suggests that intelligence agencies or the FBI were making a conscious effort to find out what the Trump campaign was doing. And I don't think there is any indication that that was the case. There's clearly some indication that some people within the Trump campaign or who had previously been in the Trump campaign fell within the scope of a counterintelligence investigation into what the Russian were doing to affect our elections. But that's a very different thing from saying that there was spying on the Trump campaign. The second thing is that the language he chose, this spying language, feeds right into a partisan narrative that the president and his supporters have been advocating. And in fact, the president picked right up on it last night. And the attorney general really shouldn't be getting into that kind of partisan fray. It's, it's just not good for the Department of Justice for the attorney general to be doing that. And the third thing is that by saying that he believed spying has occurred, before he even looks into the matter, he's throwing his own agencies, the FBI, which conducted the surveillance in the Department of Justice, right up to his deputy, Rod Rosenstein, who approved it. He's throwing them all under the bus. So he, he did say, it took him a while to say this, but he did say that he wants to know whether the spying was adequately predicated. Yeah, I think if you compare the sort of emotional impact of the words spying <laughs> and adequately predicated, you have a sense of what the right. problem yeah. is. Right. Excellent right. point. Right. right, But we should point out that there is a active inspector general investigation into the grounds upon which the uh, FBI got a FISA warrant to surveil or spy on Carter Page. And we should point out that a FISA warrant is an incredibly intrusive mandate that gives uh, the FBI the power to listen in on all of your phone calls, read all of your emails, all of your texts without you knowing about it. And so that probably meets the colloquial definition of spying. Yeah, except that Carter Page was not part of the Trump campaign at the time that warrant but was But once issued. they got it, they could look back and see all of his communications with the Trump campaign uh, that, while he was there. That depends upon the scope 
scope of the order. If it's an order for, for ongoing prospective surveillance, it right. does not necessarily authorize a, a search back and Well, the, the triggering moment was his, was his flight to Moscow and his speech there in July of 2016 when he was still a part of the campaign. So they clearly would have been looking at all his communications during Aren't that period. Aren't there filtering requirements where you, you look at some but you don't? Look at others, or not—not uh, not in the context of a FISA warrant. Mm-hmm. This is one of the areas in which intelligence surveillance differs from law enforcement surveillance. If you have a wiretapping warrant for law enforcement purposes, there's a requirement in the law of what's called minimization, and that essentially means if you are listening to a conversation and you realize this conversation has nothing to do with the crimes you're investigating, you turn off the recording device. Intelligence surveillance also has a requirement of minimization, but it operates after you've collected everything. And that is to say, once you've collected it, if you determine that it's non-pertinent, then you have to throw it out. So it operates in a somewhat different fashion. Let me ask you this question. I just want to ask one question, um, which uh, someone raised with me today. When when Comey, and I know you can't talk about what happened while you you were there, but Comey does make the decision to open up this counterintelligence investigation. And Carter Page, who, as you point out, was not on the campaign at the time, but it obviously was, you know, kind of around the campaign. Why wouldn't, at that point, the FBI uh, give... Trump, a a defensive briefing at at that point? I I don't know the answer to that. It may have been that they felt that there was enough concern about people who were associated with the campaign that until they had a firmer grip of what was going on, they didn't want to go out and start notifying people. Or they had suspicions about Trump from the get-go. Yeah, I I just, I I don't know the answer to that. You'd have to ask people at the FBI, and I'm pretty confident they wouldn't tell you. (laughs) All right. The Assange indictment. You've read it. What's your take on this? Well, I think the Department of Justice was very shrewd in how it approached this, because for years— it's been known that the government is, has been investigating Assange, and there has been a constant drumbeat of legitimate concern about the prospect of indicting somebody for publishing material that was provided to them. And the question is always raised, how do you differentiate Julian Assange from the New York Times and the Washington Post? And it's a difficult question. I'm not sure there's an easy answer to it. I don't think a person's motive uh, really serves as an adequate uh, differentiation. Uh, and so what the Department of Justice did in this case is they, they didn't indict Assange for publishing information. They indicted him for uh, conspiring with Chelsea Manning to break a security passcode that it would enable somebody to hack into a computer improperly. And I think it has been significant that virtually all of the big media have been leaping on this as saying, well, you know, this is fine. We wouldn't do anything like this. This doesn't cause any problems for us. I think that had the Department of Justice charged Assange under the Espionage Act with publishing material that that Chelsea Manning or anybody else provided to him, they would have succeeded in uh, instantly making Julian Assange a figure of sympathy and support from the press. So why did it take so long to charge him with that single count. I mean, this Especially is something the Obama the, administration... You're right. Especially since the, the communications cited in the indictment apparently have been a matter of public record for years. The idea that, you know, Manning asked Assange's help to crack right. this password, which, by the way... They, they didn't do. They didn't succeed. So well, they at least conspired we don't have any to try. That they succeeded, and they're not charged with succeeding. Right, right, right. So they're charged with conspiring, or he's charged with conspiring with Manning to do something that never actually happened. But of, why, course, of course, that that's, know, that, that's irrelevant. Okay, to the let's go back to the, my question, which is why did why why wasn't this charged before? No, no idea. I, I, it's public knowledge that the Obama administration considered charging Assange and determined not to. I don't know whether there was discussion of should we charge him with something more limited or not. I do think one reason is that, and our former and regular scholarly guest, Matt Miller, who was the spokesman right. for the Justice Department um, at the time, I think he said that at the, at, when they were considering it, there was no chance that Assange was going to be 
um, the Ecuadorian government w- was going to allow him to leave or let him leave, force him to leave the embassy. And so if you can't extradite him, then what's the point? I don't know if that's a persuasive argument, but I've heard him say that. Yeah, I'm not sure that's persuasive either, because uh, you will, particularly when you are concerned about the statute of limitations, you may return an indictment and just keep it in the box just in case something right. happens. Right. Um, you were there when these massive leaks from the Manning supplied documents took place, both the uh, war logs from Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, the diplomatic cables, probably it was probably at the time the biggest leak of classified information that had ever taken place. Did the DNI and your office believe he should be prosecuted at that time? I believe Assange should be prosecuted. Yes. I think there was, there was, as I said, a lot of discussion within the Obama administration about whether he could be prosecuted and whether it would be. Did you want him to be prosecuted? Yes and no. I think yes in the sense of everybody was extremely upset with him and what he was doing. No in the sense of people were sensitive to the First Amendment. I mean, the intelligence community actually does care about things like this as well. And there, you know, there's a concern that that we don't want to violate constitutional rights. And more more than that, there's also a, a uh, important principle that you don't get into a public relations war with somebody who buys printer's ink by the barrel. Well, that, that's um, kind of old hat these days. Yeah, well, none of this was uh, well, printer material, um, except when journalists printed yeah. out the documents that <laughs> but, were on the internet. Well, except, except, yeah. that, except that the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal right. all buy printer's ink by the barrel. Well, that's true. And, yeah. uh, and an indictment with Assange might have bought into that kind of war, and I don't think the Obama administration felt that it was appropriate to go to war with the press. A lot of people have read this indictment and think it's pretty thin gruel. What do you think? I, I, you know, I don't know the underlying proof. Um, no, but the one it, count of conspiracy, it, it I don't remember seeing a one count indictment. Yeah, That's it's pretty rare, isn't it? extremely rare. Well, I mean, it's not unheard of. Okay. And it is true that the fact that the the government has subpoenaed Chelsea Manning to the grand jury and held her in contempt for failure to testify suggests that they are continuing to investigate the possibility of bringing other charges. So a superseding indictment. A superseding indictment. There are some interesting twists of extradition law that that implicates, but... Explain that. Yeah, what's that? So if you look at the extradition treaty between the United States and Great Britain, which I did this morning before coming (laughs) over here... Good, you should come um, prepared on Skullbuggery. There is a provision in there that... that, uh, refers to the rule of specialty. And that says that if a person is extradited from one country to another country to face prosecution, that person can only be tried on the charges for which he or she was extradited unless the sending state agrees that other charges can be brought. So in theory, Unless the United States gets a superseding indictment sometime in the next 60 days when it has to, when the uh, extradition proceedings have to commence in the United Kingdom, this is the only charge on which he could be tried here. Wait, unless, unless the sending state, which is Great Britain, Great Britain, the United Kingdom, agrees. Do we have any which reason to think they wouldn't agree? That. They would not agree. Oh, I'm not, I'm not sure of that at all. I think that um, I, I think that there is a. It will be. It would be much harder to secure extradition on the publication mm-hmm. charges than on the hacking charges. Nobody has any problem with the concept of this indictment being a crime. Just imagine how you would feel if two people said, let's see if we can break uh, the password to Dan Clydman's bank account. Even if they didn't succeed in doing it, I think you'd feel those people were properly prosecuted. But, but I should point out here, there's language in here that does leap out to journalists who do want to receive newsworthy information, classified or not, from the government. It includes evidence of uh, government abuses or lies or whatever might be newsworthy. And one of which, you know, the conversations between or the online chats between Assange and Manning, one of which is, you know, as evidence that Assange was encouraging Manning to leak documents. Assange writes at one point, curious eyes never run dry in my experience. Not exactly the most over-the-line comment. Maybe it's crossing. But then it goes on. I'm reading from the indictment. It was part of the conspiracy that Assange and Manning took measures to conceal Manning as the source of the disclosure of classified records to WikiLeaks. 
We always try to conceal the identity of our sources from the public. It was part of the conspiracy that Assange encouraged Manning to provide information and records from departments and agencies of the United States. If we think a source has valuable information, we want them to share it with us. We don't want them to break the law. We don't tell them to break the law. But does some of this language, shouldn't it give concern to people who worry about the First Amendment and our ability to report truthfully about what the government is doing? Well, I suppose there are two answers to that. The sort of um, easy, snarky answer is yes. uh, it's not a problem as long as you're not helping somebody uh, uh, crack a computer security code. The sort of more legalistic answer is the government has charged a conspiracy to violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Right. They have alleged in this indictment that those actions were in furtherance of that conspiracy. It'll be their burden at trial, I'm assuming this case goes to trial, to prove that those acts were in furtherance of that conspiracy. And if they're not, the judge either won't admit them or will tell the jury to disregard them. So if you were back at your old job, I think you were chief of the criminal division, weren't you? I, I was, I was um, deputy assistant attorney general in the criminal division. Okay, would you have approved this indictment? Well, I don't, again, I'm, I don't know the underlying evidence. You've read what the government alleges. <clears throat> well, I've read what they allege. I don't know what the, I, I don't know right. what the proof of it is. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but just assuming that, it's, that the proof is Assuming strong, that these online chats are I, I, don't, I don't know why I wouldn't have. Wouldn't have given you pause at all no. to throw in language like that. They took measures to conceal Manning well, again, as the I, source. I, I, I'd, I'd ask the prosecutors who brought this to me, what's your theory as to why this is in furtherance of the conspiracy to crack the security code? And if they have a plausible theory for why that is, I'd say fine. And if they don't, I'd say take it out. Would you have been bothered by just how thin the indictment is? I don't know what you mean by thin. It's one count of a conspiracy to crack a password that they didn't crack. I mean, well, yes, it's let me, let me, yeah, there's another way to look at, at sure, that from, from sure. you know, that, okay. that actually is probably good for us, which right. is this is a surgical indictment exactly. uh, that uh, that they have brought so that they don't impinge on First Amendment rights. They did not charge him with crimes for publishing, for doing the work that we do. They tried to avoid those issues. And I think that to the extent the message that's being sent is we don't have a problem with people publishing things. We have a problem with people using illegal means to obtain information to publish. I don't think that's a bad message. But you... I mean, if, if right. you know, re- reporters shouldn't be breaking into places where they don't <laughs> belong to get information. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it was David Ignatius or someone who said what they charged them with was theft, essentially. Yeah. Well, attempted. Attempted Attempted theft. Attempted theft. Um, Looking back on it from nine years later, how damaging or not were these disclosures? Well, in the short term, it caused a tremendous expenditure of energy to try to protect people whose identities were revealed uh, in the State Department cables. There were a lot of people like human rights advocates who had met with political officers overseas who were endangered, and there was a huge effort made to protect them. I think the second degree of damage is to the credibility of the United States. So diplomatic conversations are, are presumed that they're going to be held in confidence. Mm-hmm. And we get a lot of information through State Department channels that is incredibly valuable to our ability to protect American interests, but that depends on the fact that the official in the Ministry of Finance to whom we're talking about the state of the country's economy is not going to have his cover blown. So, right. I, I, you know, you can't quantify how many conversations didn't take place because people right. no longer trust the United but States. I, but some I of should, those conversations are between sources and reporters. So, right, I mean, right. there's collateral damage but I should for us point as well. out that the public learned a lot about the U.S. government's foreign policy and the foreign policy and actions of governments around the world from these documents, including exposing corruption in foreign governments that— Helped that literally triggered the Arab Spring and the overthrow of of corrupt governments uh, throughout the Middle East. And how does so, that work out? <laughs> well, you know, yeah, fair I mean, enough. I mean, seriously, yeah. there yeah. Are, there are trade offs. Well, here. do you want do you want Gaddafi? You know, would we be better off if Gaddafi had stayed in Libya? If Saleh had stayed in Yemen? Uh, who, you know? who knows? Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, bottom line is, you believe there's going to be another indi- a superseding indictment before the uh, extradition. 
tradition. I, 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 I don't know enough to say that I believe that. I think they're certainly looking at the possibility of a superseding indictment. And I think if they're going to return one, it should be returned before the extradition proceedings get going. But how long will it take uh, before we actually ever see Julian Assange in an American courtroom? Because uh, he's going to appeal. He's got good barristers, I'm sure. The yeah, appeals I, process could I'd take be, years, right? It would be astounding if it's if it's not a couple of years. Well, on that note, we'll have you back in a couple of years then to talk about it. Thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Bye-bye. And now we're going to pivot to a story that has really gripped Washington's legal community and lobbying community in recent days, and that is the indictment of Greg Craig, probably one of the most prominent lawyers in Washington, former White House counsel to Barack Obama, former State Department official, longtime uh, lawyer at the prestige firm of Williams and Connolly, and he was indicted on two counts of false statements to the Justice Department about his work for the Ukraine. This grew out of the Robert Mueller Russia investigation, the part that focused on Paul Manafort. And Greg Craig, in a break from the usual way of doing things, actually gave a video response to the Justice Department's indictment. Let's listen to a bit of it. I did not participate in a scheme to mislead the government or conceal material facts. I was always honest about the reasons for my contacts with the media. This prosecution is unprecedented and unjustified. I am confident that both the judge and the jury will agree with me. Joining us now to talk about this is Stuart Taylor, longtime Washington journalist specializing in legal affairs and a friend of Greg Craig. Stuart, welcome to Skullduggery. Nice to be with you. So this indictment really took a lot of people by surprise. Nobody ever expected that the major spinoff from the Paul Manafort prosecution would be a high-ranking Democratic lawyer known to everybody, Barack Obama's former counsel, Greg Craig. Tell us how you think this came about and why. Well, it's complicated. He was involved with Manafort, and being involved with Manafort, in hindsight at least, is a dangerous thing to do. Manafort didn't recruit him, but Manafort was part of an effort by the Ukraine to create a public relations campaign justifying its trial conviction and imprisonment of a woman named uh, Yulia Tymoshenko, who was a rival, political rival of Yanukovych, the then president. Yanukovych and, being the pro-Russian president that's of right. Ukraine that's right. that Manafort was working yeah. for. So the Ukrainian government, in league with uh, Viktor Pinchuk, uh, who's a Ukrainian billionaire, I think, decided that it would be useful to hire a big prestigious law firm, Skadden Arps, with a big prestigious lawyer with foreign policy ties. Greg had been at the State Department, et cetera, to examine the trial and hopefully pronounce that it was fair and that all the stuff in the West and from Hillary Clinton, among others, about it being a politically motivated hit job was wrong. So they hired Skadden Arps with the hope that it would produce a report like that. Skadden said to them and publicly, you know, we're not just going to be your PR agents. We're going to write an honest professional report independently. We're not going to write what you tell us to write. And that's how the arrangement began. And so far, as far as I can tell, the government has never suggested there's anything wrong with it. Then when you get to the actual spinning of the report, if you will, communicating about the report with the press and all the background, that's where they decide that Greg Craig crossed the line from being an independent professional to being a flack for the Ukraine. That's and the so what the complaint. Justice Department alleges is that is that Greg Craig lied to Justice Department officials, but also violated the Foreign Agent Registration Act. Right. Now, he hasn't been charged with that, apparently, one reason would be the statute of limitations is run on that. But so. But far, if you're going to represent a foreign government or foreign agent in this country, either politically or in other ways, you have to disclose it. You have to disclose it, and you have to file as a foreign agent. But not if you're doing not for any and every bit of work you might be doing for a foreign government. This, you know, if it 
is presented as an independent professional evaluation of something that the foreign government wants for whatever purpose, the Justice Department has never suggested that that alone violated anything so, or that he needed to disclose anything. It's the stuff he did about getting the report publicized that they're focusing on. So look, the big picture here is that Farah has been on the book since the late 1930s. In fact, it was enacted to sort of curb or expose Nazi propaganda in the United States, but it's rarely been enforced. And a lot of people have been complaining about that for years. Law firms get around it in lots of ways. They avoid registering, so the public never knows the foreign governments that are bankrolling a lot of lobbying and public relations activity in the United States. The Manafort case crystallized that, and that was what Mueller prosecuted Manafort for, for failing to register under FARA. It really galvanized the Justice Department to crack down on FARA violations, and it is a irony in the extreme that Greg Craig is the first victim of that crackdown. It sure is. And the contrast is Manafort was lobbying politicians doing it. You know, it was clearly stuff that the Foreign Agent Registration Act required, you know, private meetings with politicians, spinning things, that sort of thing. Craig never did that. Never talked to a politician about it at least as far as the Justice Department Right, knows. but let's make it clear. Yeah. He was working with, and in many ways, directly for Manafort. It's Manafort. Well, I'd, I'd say with, not for. Well, he, I could give you a list of things Manafort asked him to do, and he said no. Right. I'm but not going to go on a tour of European capitals. I'm not going to go to Washington, D.C. and spin this report. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And he, you know, he did work collaboratively with Manafort to a degree. Explain why it's materially worse, if you think it is, to do that kind of work, you know, lobbying Congress or government agencies than a public relations campaign that goes directly to the American people and tries to change their perceptions without disclosing who your client is. Some people might even think that's worse. Well, you can people can argue about that. And it's clear that the Foreign Agents Registration Act does cover that sort of activity. But I don't think the Justice Department ever claimed and in fact, they said the opposite when they were communicating with Craig, just giving a copy of the report to the media, that doesn't cross the line into public relations. But when you're talking to them about what it means, you're spinning it. Yeah, that crosses. Nobody's ever been prosecuted for that before with reporters, but that probably crosses the line. So then the question is, was Craig spinning it to help the Ukraine, his client, put the spin on it that they wanted. And to that, his answer is no. They were spinning in a misleading fashion what our report said. To and make by, it the more way, and by the way, we should, we should yeah. just point, because I don't think we said this, that you, Stewart, wrote a piece that came out a couple of weeks ago for in Real Clear Politics, correct? That's correct. Uh, that argued, and, and you have been talking to Greg Craig's lawyers, and they provided you with some of the background information, emails, documents, and basically you made this argument that what was going on here, if the Justice Department did indict Greg Craig, which they now have done, would be a travesty of justice. I did say that, and I think so. And by the way, two points that are relevant, you hadn't asked me, but I'll say them anyway. But I think they're very significant. Well, one is it's so unprecedented to go after a reporter, you know, for talking to reporters. The other is this was shopped to the Southern District of New York, you know, the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office, which by many accounts is the crack prosecuting office in the world. And they took, you know, the Mueller's people referred it. It went up there. To Jeffrey uh, Berman, the U.S. Attorney. To Jeffrey there. Berman, the U.S. Attorney, and his top aides. They met with Craig's lawyers. And after a while, they basically decided we're not prosecuting. So what happens? I think Craig thought it was over. The National Security Division of the Justice Department had a different idea, so they shopped it to the uh, U.S. Attorney in D.C., and they've gotten them to indict him. Now, that's legal, but I've never heard of it being done before. 
You know, we can't get this prosecutor to indict him, so we'll get that one to indict him. I think that sheds some light on it. Just on the question of the relationship with Manafort, there are some interesting emails that are quoted in the indictment after Greg Craig supplies the report to David Sanger of the New York Times, gives him a quote, the Times writes about it. The lobbyist, who is Manafort in the indictment, sends Craig an email bearing the subject, well done, the pro has emerged again, the initial rollout has been very effective, and you're back Backgrounding has been key to it all. At least today, everyone in Kiev is quite happy. They like the report and are especially happy with the way the media is playing it. Craig responds, I thought the piece in the Ukrainian newspaper was terrific. I'm glad it went so well. And then Manafort writes back to Craig, giving him a list of media coverage. You are back in the headlines internationally. He writes, people in Kiev are very happy. You are the the man man." in caps. That's good evidence for the government. Here's something the indictment doesn't tell you. Yeah. Manafort told Craig in a different email earlier, while it was was being prepared to go out, this will be a catastrophe. I think catastrophe was the words, according to the PR people, because the Ukraine people think it's not favorable to their position. And it wasn't. That's a very mixed report. That was the draft of the report. Yeah, but it wasn't changed substantially between then and when and, and then when it went public. Now, I, you know, I guess Manafort obviously either felt very differently about it once it went public or pretended he did. But the idea that this was, you know, I think it's a little misleading. They claim that Craig didn't tell them everything they might have wanted to know. Well, I think he didn't tell the people reading the indictment everything that they would have wanted to know. I got to say, you know, the fact that there seems to be ample evidence that Skadden and Greg Craig personally did want this to be an independent investigation and an independent report, if this were ever to get to a jury... That's powerful evidence on Greg Craig's side. I actually want to read. This is an email that, Stuart, you just supplied us that's from Greg Craig to uh, Jonathan Hawker. Who is that? Lead PR agent for FTI Consulting, which had been retained by – they're referred to in the indictment, actually. The indictment somewhat inaccurately suggests that Greg Craig recommended them. That's a little bit – misleading. But anyhow, here it is. So this is uh, September 25th, 2012. There's a lot of stuff in here that is just wrong. I understand that your desire to spin this report in a way that supports Ukraine's view on this trial of this trial, but much of what you say is not accurate. Actually, if I read this or heard this, I would think that Skadden had been bought and paid for. And this report was indeed a total whitewash. And it goes on. Of course, a lot of cynics would say big American law firm, $4 million. Of course they were bought and paid for. But that's not the premise on which Greg Craig took this engagement. And the, and again, the Justice Department doesn't fault it so far. They fault what he said. To the, they fault him going to the New York Times and initiating a meeting and, you know, giving them the report and talking to them about what's in it. Although, again, as I said, the only thing he told them, there's an on-the-record quote. Usually you don't see in the New York Times story reporting this. And it said, Craig says, we're not taking a position on whether the trial of Timoshenko is politically motivated. The report said there was no evidence that she didn't put any evidence, but we're not taking a position. That's just the opposite of what the Ukraine's PR stuff said and what various publications said. So he was going against the Ukrainian spin, at least in that regard. I guess the sort of you know, larger question here that has a lot of people scratching their heads is how does somebody as smart and as accomplished as Greg Craig, and who has been around as long as he has, get himself into this sort of trouble. I mean, clearly at a minimum, he's pretty close to the line. Whether or not he's crossed it, the jury will presumably decide if the case goes forward. But the only real explanation in the indictment that sort of leaps out is, and it's an email they have from Greg Craig when they first took the engagement about whether they needed to register under FARA. And Craig writes, I don't want to register as a foreign agent under FARA. I think we don't have to with this assignment. And the motivation that uh, the Justice Department puts in this indictment is that he thought that it would hurt his chances and or others at the firm who might have worked on the case 
of getting a job, a future job in the in the government. And we should point out that he came out of the Obama administration, and at he least came, in that first term, Obama had a total ban barred any lobbyists. On any, any lobbyists. Right, right, right. And, so, and at his age, by the way, he was not going to be getting a job in a Hillary Clinton administration. <laughs> yeah, especially yeah, after especially he ditched Hillary yeah. to right. go support Obama. Yeah. So how, how does Greg Craig get himself into this kind of trouble? That's a very good and question. And why? And I suspect some of the background you gave may help explain it. You know, back, this was, remember, this is 2012. Right. You know, the FARA was kind of a nothing statute, and people weren't all that uh, punctilious about making sure they didn't cross some line. Which it's is clear, a big issue, yeah, by the it's way. Clear that there, it's, <laughs> you know, a, it's clear that, that yes, So, so yes. It, shouldn't we give hats off to the Justice Department for finally getting serious about enforcing a law that's been on the books since the late 1930s? We should if they enforce it in a case where it's justifiable to say that the guy lied. And that's what the argument is about this. Uh, But if you want to know why wasn't he a mile from the line, I suspect he wasn't a mile from the line because it didn't seem that dangerous to be as close to the line as he was. Now, you know, obviously, in hindsight, he was too close to the line because when the Justice Department indicts you, you were too close to the line, period, just because it wasn't prudent to do it. That doesn't mean you violated it, and it certainly doesn't mean that you lied when you told the government, when you answered all their questions honestly, but economically, without telling them everything they might have wanted to know. Leaving out information that they they have argued was relevant to their questioning, uh, including the fact that he was working with the PR firm in London. He's the one who suggested providing it to David Sanger, the report to David Sanger. He had it personally delivered to David Sanger's home. So he was clearly playing a role in shaping the PR rollout of the report. Now, I think you'll see, that's all true in a sense. I think you'll see in the trial that there was a sequence of events leading up to that the gist of which Craig was, as Dan's just read, Craig was complaining that they were putting a misleading spin on it. He kept complaining. They kept doing it. They sent him, you know, PR stuff. He said, this stinks. I'm not, you know, we're not going to do that. They stopped sending him copies of the PR stuff because they could see he wasn't on board. Then the time comes when Sanger, who'd been in touch with before, is everybody's choice, it seems to be, to be the guy you leak the report to to try and lead the news coverage. And they did that just before. And Greg did that just before the coverage. If Greg hadn't done it, somebody else was going to do it for them. The reason Greg is giving why he decided that he would be the one to talk to Sanger is he wanted to give Sanger an accurate picture of what the report said. And he, by then, was quite clear that the PR guy, if he did it, was going to give a misleading Ukrainian spin on the report. And I can tell you what that's about, but it gets a little technical. So, Stuart, I want to get back to Mike's question, because I understand your point about this was 2012. Farrell was really never being enforced. And I should point and, out, by the way, Manafort's lawyers argued that in his defense, right. saying this was selective prosecution, right. that they were going after Paul Manafort yeah. for violation, violating a law that was rarely enforced. But for me, the more baffling question in some ways is why he would put himself in the position to work so closely with, you know, the Ukrainian government and with a guy like Paul Manafort. You lie down with dogs. What's the old saying? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I, I kind of, I, I, yeah, it's a good question, and um, my guess is that he'll have an answer to it at the trial. But I think what he was trying to do after he got into this company, and I, I don't think Manafort was quite as dirty then in terms of his reputation as he is now. Oh, he'd been, he'd been pretty dirty. dirty. Once you got for into a this real company, long time, the yeah. lobbyist for well, Mobutu, say. for Marcos, so he, for every thug let's, and let's say plutocrat around the world. Maybe the book about this could be yeah. titled Dancing with Manafort. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. But I mean that in the sense of trying to keep his distance while at the same time you know, working on the same matter with Manafort. Manafort was supposed to be doing the spin. Greg was supposed to be doing the independent professional report. The lines, you know, other people, according to Greg, kept crowding him and trying to drag him into the PR. And I guess they succeed. You know, he did. Yeah, I mean, I, I, times. Greg Craig certainly doesn't have to take this case for the money. 
I mean, I can't imagine that that's the motivation for him. Well, you join a new big. I think law that's firm. that's what I would get to. That's what I wanted. To. So that's Isn't the that, point. That's yeah. the kind of cultural law firm point that I wanted to make. Yeah. My sense is, in some of these big law firms, there is an enormous amount of pressure from your peers and from the law firm leadership to bring in these big cases. And then I wonder. Greg Craig has now left the firm. Seems like he was pushed out. And, uh, you know, is there a sense in which Skadden threw him under the bus? Skadden has now paid back the $4 million in some kind of settlement, but there was no criminal charge against Skadden. I think they did. In fact, about a year ago, or maybe a little more than a year ago, Skadden put out a statement that they and Greg had not violated the Foreign Ed- Registration Act. I don't think they know anything now that they didn't know then. Now, I suspect that people at Scadden will say Greg didn't tell them everything. He didn't tell us everything he was doing. But bottom line, I think uh, Scadden threw him out under the bus, not because they hated him, because and this was a very messy publicity disaster for a giant law firm, and this was their way to get out of it. Have you talked to Greg? Not about the substance. You know, I've, I, I, I've seen him. I've talked right. to him about life talking about what he's going through, but I talked to his lawyers right. and not to him about all the facts we're discussing. Right. You know, How, that's just the way I uh, take it this they has wanted to be do it. Devastating for him. Oh, I think so. I mean, he's a pretty, you know, he's not the kind of guy who bursts into tears in front of you. Right. Uh, but, you know, I first met him when he was defending John Hinckley for attempting to assassinate <laughs> right. the president of the United States. And yeah. I was I was impressed with him then, and I've been impressed with him ever since. Uh, which is one reason I kind of went out on a limb as a friend of his, which was disclosed at the top of my article. Because when I saw this going on, I said, I know this guy. I've known him for 30-some years. Uh, He's not the type of guy who's going to lie to the government to get a little more money. By the way, I still think that. I should just disclose that I've known him for a long time. We both have. We've covered him for a long time. I was involved in some pretty interesting litigation um, with him. Uh, Cartwright, the uh, Haas Cartwright, who was the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, was um, indicted by the Justice Department for leaking to reporters. Uh, those reporters uh, were David Sanger, who appears in this story, and myself. And, Clydeman. and Greg Craig actually effectively ran a campaign to get Cartwright pardoned. Obama did pardon him, and um, among among the things he did was he got an affidavit from me to help him in that case. So I just uh, right. felt I right. should probably... Well, you that. may get called as a character witness yeah. in the trial, but, but anyway. You um, guys, since I've disclosed that I'm a friend of his, that yeah. you can judge me on this, I think one reason this has gone off like a bomb in D.C. is a lot of people have known him for a long time. Right. And a lot of them, maybe all of them, think, Greg Craig's an honest guy. This doesn't right. make sense. Yep. Yeah. Well, we will see how this plays out uh, and whether it actually goes to trial. It'll be uh, quite the trial that a lot of people in Washington will be following. Uh, Stuart, we will have you back to talk about it. It will go to trial. It will go to trial. Okay. Thanks. Unless for- unless. Yeah. Bill Barr has an epiphany or something like that, <laughs> which he hasn't had a very good ones lately. Right. Right. Anyway, <laughs> well, thanks we'll for joining us that. on uh, thanks, Skullduggery. Thanks to Bob Litt and Stuart Taylor for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on YahooNews.com, YouTube, and Roku. Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.